Hey, morning. Uh, two things before we get into the message. Number one, did you see this yet this weekend? Uh, check that out, right? That is, uh, yeah. I went up on Friday. Um, I got a text uh, earlier in the morning. Some people were saying, like, someone's on our land doing something. I saw them digging. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we're really, really excited about that. Uh, We've got a ways to go still. You know, there's money still to come in. Um, but our hope is still to break ground uh, in the spring when the ground thaws in March or whenever that is. So, uh, And then secondly, I just wanted, before we get into the message, I just want to say a quick word about baptism as well. Uh, listen, baptism is the outward symbol of your salvation. It symbolizes that when you believed in Jesus, when you believed he died in your place, you said, I'm going to become his follower, that he washed away your sins. It's like you were buried and then you rose to new life as a new creation. And baptism is just a public declaration of what he did. And in the Bible, every believer, every believer, every believer is commanded to get baptized. Everyone. And it's not something that we do uh, as, as babies. I mean, this is kind of difficult for us in the upper Midwest because there's such a cultural precedent for that. But if you, re- you read the New Testament uh, with your own eyes, you'll see that every single person that gets baptized in the New Testament is a believer first. They're a believer, and then they get baptized as the outward symbol of their faith. And so God's word calls us to do just that. I know there are a number of you in this room that you're newer believers. You maybe uh, stood up and decided you were going to follow Jesus at Easter or a few months before that or earlier this year. Uh, If that's you, uh, we are pumped for you, and we just encourage you uh, to get baptized uh, this summer. Sign up today. Now, some of you, you've been believing for a little while now, but you've just actually never been baptized as a believer. So I encourage you, if that's you, to get baptized as well. You can sign up uh, on the app or just walk out into the hallway uh, and sign up after the service. And then let me just quickly address one question that we've been getting a lot uh, lately, and especially the last year or two, as a number of you uh, now have kids that are moving into that elementary school age. Often we get asked, I've got a a child who's a six or seven or nine, and they're kind of interested in getting baptized. Uh, Should should we have them get baptized? Listen, we don't have a rule uh, for that because the Bible doesn't have like an age rule, and we're not about to put a rule on something that the Bible doesn't have a rule for. And so if you feel like they genuinely have faith, they have a relationship with Jesus, uh, obviously uh, you can do that. Uh, but I want to give you a principle from personal experience. So this is just my take on it. Uh, it's just a, not, a, not a rule, but a principle. I personally, I often encourage parents to wait. Uh, wait until your kids are kind of of youth group age, you know, sixth grade or higher, when their faith is more likely to really become their own. And this is why I would say that. I can't tell you how many people come up to me every single year. It's two, three, four people a year, and they say, David, I was baptized when I was six. My parents were really excited for it, and they thought it would be great, and I said I believed in Jesus, or I was eight, or I was nine, and they'll say, but it didn't really mean anything to me. I don't even really remember it that well. Can I get baptized again now that I'm 25 or 34? And we always say no, because that's not what baptism is in the scriptures. And so if you have young kids, yes, you may be really excited about it, and you think it's a great thing, and yes, they believe. My encouragement to you is to wait until it's a more meaningful, memorable experience to them. But if you feel like, no, the Holy Spirit's saying we need to do it now, I'm not the Holy Spirit, so we absolutely will baptize uh, your elementary age kids as well. Okay, uh, this morning uh, we're going to continue in the book of Luke, and we've come to what might be really the most famous of Jesus's parables, especially to those outside of the church. And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan about helping those in need. 
Let me just address what happened in some of your hearts. Some of you just went, oh man, this is going to be about like serving people and helping people. I already don't do that. I'm not good at that. I'm just going to feel guilty. Can we just go to the next thing in Luke? Okay, if that's happening in your heart, I just want you to, to right now just open your heart up to the Lord. And say, God, as we read your word today, may I just see it afresh. May I see it anew. May you just empower me to live this out. And just pray that as you listen today. I want you to follow along with this passage. We're going to try and draw a lot out of it. There's a Bible under every chair. We're going to be on page 843. Uh, Or you can follow along in the Renovation Church app. Either way, uh, you just click Bible in weekly verses. Either way, it's always good to have the word of God in front of you. So you can check it and you can look at it as we talk. And so Jesus, he's going to be confronted by a religious teacher. Uh, it's, he's called an expert in the law. He's not a lawyer per se. He's an expert in the law of Moses uh, from the Old Testament. So let's take a look. Luke chapter 10, uh, we are on verse uh, 25. Here's what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, let's just pause here for just a minute. Why why does this religious expert of the Jews, why does he ask but who would you say is really my neighbor? Okay, well, Jesus just told him that if he was going to go to heaven, that he needed to love God and love his neighbor. My guess is he probably felt a lot of conviction for not loving a lot of his neighbors. So he's basically saying like, yeah, but how would you define the word neighbor, right? Because remember, this guy, he's trying to earn his way to God. And in fact, look at the text. It, it actually says he's trying to justify himself to God. See, when you're trying to earn your own way to salvation, you're trying to earn your own way to God, often what you want to do is you want to create these convenient rules that box God's demands onto your life into really small areas that you happen to conveniently already be obeying. So really, what the man wants Jesus to say to him is something like, oh, well, actually, your neighbor is just your family. So the guy could go, oh, (laughs) how convenient. I'm already loving my neighbor. Oh, God must be so impressed with me, right? We we do this all the time, actually, as Christians. We, We feel sometimes the conviction or the intensity of the word of God, and we feel like in our heart of hearts, we're like, I ain't doing that. And so we just kind of rationalize, we try and justify ourselves and say, it doesn't really mean that, it just means this, this thing that I'm already doing. But the problem is, when your spirituality turns into you just checking the right boxes so you can earn your way to heaven, you will rarely, if ever, actually be concerned about serving and helping other people. Or if you even do it, you'll just do it because that's like a way to check a box to justify yourself and earn your way. But Jesus says, that's that's not really the way it works. There is a true and better way. And because he's a good teacher, he tells them a story. So look at this story. So now we're at verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. 
They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, so the story, story starts. We have this priest, right? And he's walking by the dying man. Now, the priest is supposed to be the godly person. You know, I think most Christians could be identified as the priest in the story. We're the followers of God. The culture around us should rightfully expect us to be the ones to take care of those who have needs. And yet the priest not only walks by the man who's dying, it says he literally crosses over to the other side so he won't even have to look at the man in the eye. And the priest, and and similarly the, the Levite, which is like a temple worker, they don't stop for really a number of reasons. For one, if it turned out that the man was actually dead, and they touched him, what would have happened in Jewish law is they would have then become ritually impure. So they would have had to go, oh man, I just touched a dead person. Now I got to go back all the way to Jerusalem and I'll have to go through the purification rites, which would take seven days before they could actually move on again to where they were going in Jericho. So they decide that they can't take their chances that this guy is actually maybe dead. And so their schedule takes priority instead of the man. Like our schedule does for many of us. We say all the time, right, there's needs in front of you in your own life, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your city, in our church. And we go, yeah, I, don't, I just don't have time to serve other people. I said, my work schedule is crazy. My kids have got soccer and t-ball and all swimming lessons. And, and we clutch the idol of schedule and clutch the idol of self and we self-care ourselves to death while people around us are facing real death. I just learned in the last week and a half of two suicides. One was a person that I once knew quite well. I think people all around us in our culture are literally dying of despair. All while we have the gospel, we have the good news that can save them. We see them on the other side of the road. We see them in the peripheral vision of our lives. We see them suffering, but we walk by them and we walk by them and we walk by them. Why? I would say because as Americans, the devil has us right where he wants us, clutching our idols of schedule and of self 
refusing to let go of them as we walk by dying people. One of the other things that we know of why it was difficult for them to serve is that this particular road from Jerusalem to Jericho was very dangerous. So there were a number of uh, caverns and caves, you know, places where a robber could hide out. In fact, in those days, uh, that particular road from Jerusalem to Jericho uh, actually was literally called the Pass of Blood because there were so many people that were injured or killed walking on that road. You know, I think some, sometimes contextually we don't understand this about this story. We think, oh yeah, this would be kind of like if I was out for a walk on a summer's night and I was walking back to my house and I happened to see a homeless person. And really, contextually, that's not what this story is. It would be more like, imagine you're on vacation in New York City, and it's kind of late in the evening, and you get lost for hours, and you can't find your way, and you end up in this this really dangerous neighborhood, and it's one in the morning, and then you see someone lying half dead on the side of the road. To get out and serve them would be a risk to you. That's what's happening as these people are walking by on the road. And I think many of us, we don't serve other people for really the same reason. We don't want to risk any suffering, any hardship, any discomfort. So we just keep walking. We clutch the idol of self. And we just keep walking. We don't want any suffering. No suffering of having to get out there in the community because we know that's going to be hard. No suffering of serving the body of Christ, right? If, if, if you're serving and teaching kids the Bible on a Sunday morning and, and renovation kids, you know that, well, then I would have to stay actually for another service and I just got so many things going on and I can't, now I'm not really gonna do that. Or you know someone at, at work who's just maybe just socially awkward, right? But you know they're moving next week and they don't really have anyone to help them move and you think, ah, yeah, I'm not gonna do that because that would just give me a lot of just comfort and we don't do it. We keep walking by people with needs simply because we don't want to risk any discomfort. It's the idol of self. So much of the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus are about death to self. It's learning to put to death our selfish needs and ambitions. So the priest walks by, the Levite walks by, and here comes the Samaritan. Now, remember, uh, I know a, a number of you are new around here, even in the last few weeks, but if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about the Samaritans when we were in Luke chapter 9, and the Jews at that time, they hated the Samaritans. They hated them. So Jesus picks a Samaritan in this story on purpose. He wants his Jewish listeners to feel convicted, to feel uncomfortable about their lack of compassion for the very people right around them. I want you to, let's do a mental exercise. I I want you to picture someone in your mind who is very different from you. So let's do this. Picture someone who is completely on the opposite spectrum of you politically. Okay, picture a person like that. Now make them a different race than you in your mind. And then make them a different socioeconomic status, right? They make a totally different amount of money than you, maybe lower or higher. This person is really different from you. You have that person? Now insert that person into the story as the Samaritan. 
And that feeling that you feel, that's exactly how the story would have felt to the original listeners. Now think about this. Okay, let's say Jesus comes here in the flesh, or he shows up at your house one day, and he tells you this story. And instead of a Samaritan, it's that person you were just thinking of who looks way different than you. And yet they were the person who went out and helped the hurting man. And then if Jesus, after telling you about that person, looked you in the eye and said, now go and do likewise, what would you feel? Well, we should feel convicted. But I think a lot of us don't. We are, I don't know what's gotten into us, but in our culture, we are experts at escaping conviction. I think lots of times we use the same tactic that the man who's questioning Jesus uses so we can avoid the discomfort of conviction. We say, well, I, I, okay, yes, there's people around me. Yeah, there's things I could do. I could go out and serve and help my neighbor. But I'm already doing enough, God. I'm already doing enough. I do this, I do this, I do this. And we shrink this amazing call of God on our lives to just the things that we're already doing. But are we truly his disciples? Are we truly disciples of Jesus? Or are we just cultural Christians? Okay, think back to this exchange before the parable. This, this will make you put your theological thinking cap on a little bit. Jesus says, okay, if the man loves God and does good, he will be one who gets eternal life in heaven. That's what it actually says. Uh, this is really similar to when we went verse by verse through the book of James back in 2016. Uh, James famously says, chapter 2, he says, faith without works, that's good deeds, is actually dead. In other words, if you don't really love your neighbor, for instance, then you probably don't have faith. Loving your neighbor is a natural output of having legitimate Christian faith. And your neighbor, Jesus seems to say, is anyone whose need you see that you can meet. That's your neighbor. Who is that in your life right now? Here's a challenge for us as sort of suburban American evangelical Christians. We seem to think that going to church, that's important. Uh, praying, yeah, important. Uh, reading the Bible, super important. Serving people with needs, optional. Like maybe for the super spiritual. Now, I, 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 listen, I get this, that the, serving isn't the most natural thing for many of us, but just a plain reading through the Bible, I think, ought to make us sweat. Maybe we've just been missing something in our culture. You read through the Old Testament, and the prophets in the Old Testament, a lot of these books that we don't read, a lot, the prophets in the Old Testament have a whole lot to say about believers who come to a religious service and they praise God and they say their prayers and they praise God with their lips but they show nothing with their actions. That's called hypocrisy. Jesus' words in Matthew 25 is another passage that ought to make our knees shake. Jesus says that on judgment day, he will come back to earth and he will separate the sheep from the goats, the real believers from the fake ones. 
And do you know what the evidence is that he gives for, in Matthew 25 for how he will tell the difference between the real believers and the fake believers in the church? He says, I'll tell the difference this way. The ones who came and fed me and clothed me and visited me in prison, they were the real believers. And the people hear this and they're incredulous. They said, Jesus, yeah, 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 but Jesus, when did we... We never saw you in prison. He says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. But what does that mean? Okay, well, th- theologically here, he's not saying that you need to serve other people to be saved. We just know that's not how the Bible works. He's saying that serving those who have a need is a key outworking of those who have a true faith. Uh, uh, Timothy Keller, whose thoughts I'm just really indebted to on, on this passage, He often explains it this way. I've heard him use this analogy a a few times. He says, imagine there are two trees. Uh, One tree is uh, full of just leaves and fruit. And the other tree is completely barren. It's dead. No leaves, no fruit. Which tree is alive? It's the one with the leaves and the fruit, right? Now, do the leaves and the fruit give the tree life? Is that what makes it alive? Well, no, but they reveal, they're the very things that reveal that the tree actually has life. And that's what our good works do. That's what our deeds do. They're the evidence, the revelation of our faith. See, I actually think it's pretty possible for you to fake that you're a Christian, for you to fake that you have spiritual life and faith just to just about anyone, except for God. I think that Jesus uses this particular topic of serving those in need as an example because you can go through the motions of coming to church and saying a prayer and faking like you have faith, but way less people are actually going to go out of their way and serve someone with a need, especially if it's going to cost them their time and money. And doing something like that often is revealing true faith. Keller also tells a story of an old woman. She had no children, no husband, but she was incredibly wealthy. And she was trying to figure out, who am I going to give all of my, all my money to when I die? Her only heir uh, was a nephew of hers, and she didn't really know him that well. Every time she was around him, he seemed like just sort of extra charming, and she just didn't know if it was real or not. This is actually a true story. So this woman came up with this idea. She was going to get some help from some friends, and she dressed up as a homeless person and went early in the morning and sat outside her nephew's townhouse. And she waited for him to come out. And he came out, and he sees this homeless woman on his steps, and he's incredibly rude to her. He says, you got to get out of here right now, and he threatens her. He threatens that he's going to call the police. He just starts calling down these curses on her. And she knows. Now she knows whom he really is. Who are we really? Let me pause for a second because I think to a lot of us in this room, this is just really deflating. Maybe the word of God just feels overwhelming today. There's some of you in this room that are even going, all right, come on, come on, self. You're just going to work harder. I know you don't have time for this, but like, 
oh, find somebody to serve, or maybe there's some organization I can serve, but you're human like me, and so at the same time in your mind, you're going, oh, I need to do this, and the Bible's saying I should do this, but I don't got time for this. Ain't nobody got time for this, right? How am I going to, I just, I don't even want to do this. This is not even going to, stop making me feel guilty, David. Here's the thing. I hope this helps in how you interpret the Bible. If you leave here, and this, the idea of serving the needs of the people around you, if this is just like one more thing now you have to do in life, that's going to last you for about three days. And then that'll be it. And really, if you're looking at this going like, oh, I'm going to do this, I don't even really want to do this. You're actually no different than the man who's questioning Jesus, who's basically just asking, yeah, but what's the least I have to do? Like, who's really my neighbor? Like, just show me Jesus with box, which boxes I have to check. That's the exact same attitude as, oh, the Bible says that if I have to do it, I will it. But, like, how much do I have to do? How much do I have to obey God? Like, just enough so I can justify myself to him. And that sort of attitude is completely antithetical to what Christianity actually is. And if you feel yourself sort of caught in that attitude, I want to challenge you tonight, even this week, go home, read the book of Romans in the Bible. Rediscover what Christianity actually is. So I think we can ask this question of the text. The priest walks by, the Levite walks by. Why does the Samaritan actually stop? Because we want to stop, right? What causes him to stop? Okay, well, what does the Bible say? It says that he had pity on the man. Now, this is a bit tricky because, you know, words, the semantic range of words evolve, uh, evolves over time. So pity, when they sort of, you know, did these translations in the olden days, doesn't necessarily mean what it today means today. And so many of the other translations have updated this word, and they'll say that the, the Samaritan had compassion on the man. Some of them say he had deep compassion. Because the Greek word, that's what the Luke was originally written in, the Greek word actually means to have deep compassion from one's bowels. That's what it means. It's only used a couple times in the New Testament. It's used uh, when Jesus sees the helpless crowds. And he goes to them because the Bible says he had deep compassion on them. Uh, It's used in the prodigal son story. When the father sees his lost and sinful son coming home to him. It says the father was moved with such deep compassion for his son that he ran to him. See, the good Samaritan can serve someone in need because he's moved by compassion. Not obligation, compassion. Not guilt, compassion. How do you do this? How do you serve people in need in your life, in your family, in your neighborhood, in the cities around us? How do we let ourselves be moved by compassion, not obligation? I will tell you, we stop reading this story as obligation, and we start reading it in light of the gospel. See, I think a lot of times when Christians read the Good Samaritan, this is very American of us, by the way, we put ourselves in the story as the hero, as the Samaritan. We're like, 
okay, that's me, I'm the Samaritan. And then, then we look at our lives like, I ain't doing that. And then we put all this pressure on ourselves like, oh, I gotta be better, I gotta help people, I gotta pull myself up by my bootstraps and just work harder to go and serve people. But are you the Samaritan? Are you the Samaritan in this story? Maybe you're not. Maybe we should stop reading the story like that. See, if you read it in light of the gospel, you'd actually identify with a man who is bleeding and broken, without hope and about to die. You'd identify with the one who was saved by the radical grace of another. I mean, imagine you were that man on the road. Let's imagine this for real. Imagine you're on vacation somewhere, and out of nowhere, robbers come by, and they beat you. You're severely beaten. They take everything on you. And then a stranger comes by you, and with so much compassion, they stop for you, and they pick you up, and they carry you to the hospital down the street, and they even pay your bill at the hospital. Okay, let's say that actually really happened in your life. Now let's say after that happened, it's six months later. You happen to be walking again on the road somewhere, and you see someone else lying on the road in your exact same situation. Now, if that had already happened to you, let me ask you this question. If you saw someone else lying that, like that, would you stop? 100%, right? 100%. You would absolutely stop. Well, here's the thing. This actually happened in your life if you're a Christian. Spiritually, you were poor, destitute, actually. We brought nothing to God but our sin and rebellion. We were basically dying on the side of the road. And yet God, in his compassion on us... In his immense love for you, Jesus stooped down. He came down and rescued you. Even though we brought nothing. You see, when you truly understand the reality of that salvation, you cannot say, well, those needy people in my life, they should just help themselves and fix their own mess they got into. Because if Jesus would have left you to save yourself, you'd be dead. Who's the spirit just nudging you towards this morning? Uh, the Scottish pastor, a long time ago, Pastor Robert Murray McShane, once was really frustrated with his church because of all the excuses they kept bringing to him of why they couldn't help people in need in their lives and in their community. And there were so many needs in their community and their church just wasn't doing anything. The people of the church just sat there so he began to answer their objections, not with logic, but just with the gospel. I want to read you some of what he said. He remarked to them, if you say, oh, I can't serve because my money is my own. He says, understand that Christ might have said to you, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where would you have been? McShane then said, and if you say, okay, yeah, there's people in my life and they, they have, they've got some needs, but they're undeserving. They got themselves into this mess. He says, understand that Christ may have said to you, look at these wicked rebels. 
Shall I lay my life down for these? But no, Christ left the 99 and he came after the lost for us. He came and gave his blood for the undeserving, for us. McShane continues and he basically says, some of you will say, but what if I help them? Because this is often why we don't serve. What if I help them and they just abuse it? They just take advantage of me. He says, Christ might have said the same thing to you, but with far greater truth. Jesus knew that thousands and thousands would trample his blood under their feet, and many more would take his grace and change nothing in their lives. And yet he still served and gave his own blood. See, if we're going to have compassion for those around us and serve them, it starts Christians with remembering who we were. We don't become the Samaritan by imitating the Samaritan. We become the Samaritan by first remembering that we were the dying person on the side of the road. And Jesus had compassion on us. See, that is how we change the world. Moral obligation will change nothing, but the gospel inside of us can change everything. Let me pray. Jesus, we just pray this morning that we would get a hold of the gospel, that we would get a hold that we were dying, we were sinful, we brought nothing to you, and yet you brought everything to us. We were undeserving, we've been unfaithful, and yet you came and rescued us, bandaged us, and made us whole. God, may that please, please Jesus, may that leak out from us onto the other people around us. May the gospel overflow out of us to the people around us that they may see your good deeds and then praise our Father up in heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen.